do whatever it is that you want to do. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, nice introduction. It's uh, yeah, it's fun to be here at the Institute for the Future. I think I, I met Paul Sappho about oh gosh, 20 years ago, and he mentioned the name to me. It always sounded like a, an, an interesting place to visit. So I'm I'm happy to be here today. And uh, one reason I'm getting out and about. Well, the first reason is that you invited me. And uh, another reason I'm going out and doing more stuff, I'm sort of promoting this, this new book that I just published. It's called The Life Box, The Seashell and the Soul. And uh, I can pass that around if you want to look at that. That uh, is just coming out this week. And I'm, uh, some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about is based on that. And uh, so I'm going to begin by talking about this idea of gnarly computation, which uh, I'm sure there's going to be some of you that are, are quite familiar with what I'm talking about. Um, in, in some ways, as, uh, as Michael said, I'm building on things that Stephen Wolfram wrote about in The New Kind of Science. Um, I met Stephen Wolfram at the Institute for Advanced Study in, I believe it was 1984. I was, at that time, I was a freelance writer living in Lynchburg, Virginia, of all places, Jerry Falwell's hometown. That's where you're from? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's where I was living, yeah. Yeah, God sent me there to help start cyberpunk. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but I was doing an article on, I'd seen this article by Stephen in the Scientific American that really fascinated me. And so I, I went up and met him and some people in Boston University to find out about cellular automata. And it uh, really had an effect on me. And then in 86, I came out to San Jose State and began teaching computer science there. And uh, my main reason I wanted to teach computer science was so I could write cellular automata programs and play with them. And uh, so this stuff has sort of been with me for a while. Now I'm going to inflict a PowerPoint upon you. Uh, and then uh, maybe I'll show you some demos. And uh, so this, uh, you can find out lots of stuff about me if you go to rudyrucker.com. I keep, a, I keep a blog that I write in pretty much. And I have a web page about this book, uh, the Lifebox book. And what we've got here is some pictures of what I consider to be gnarly cellular automata. Now, uh, the, uh, the subtitle of my book is What Gnarly Computation Taught Me About Ultimate Reality, the Meaning of Life, and How to Be Happy. So it's a good California subtitle. And uh, one thing I was noticing when I was trying to sell the book um, was that a lot of popular science books these days do have very long subtitles. And it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. But uh, again, I'm, I thought I'd put those things in. Because those are things I care about. Now, the title of the book, it's a dialectic triad. Uh, I'm actually the great, great, great grandson of the philosopher George Hegel on my mother's side. So I like dialectic triads. And so this is a, a pattern. Uh, teaching software engineering, you learn to see things in terms of patterns. So this is the thesis, the synthesis, and the antithesis pattern. We put the synthesis in the middle. So uh, how do I mean that? Well, 
the, uh, the idea of the life box, and I'm going to tell you in just a second what I mean by life box. That's the thesis. The antithesis is the soul, and the synthesis is uh, a seashell, a particular kind of seashell. This is sort of Wolfram's mascot. It's the textile cone shell, and I brought one here. Probably many of you have handled these, but it's sort of fun to see one. You can pass this around. Um, I, I really, I got this thing about textile cone shells. Uh, I wrote a, after finishing this book, I wanted to have some fun, and I wrote a science fiction novel about some crazy mathematicians, and they get in touch with another reality, and these creatures that come from there, there's giant cone shells that come from there and start eating people. They're, uh, they're very vicious animals, actually. But be that as it may, so this is the setup. Okay, now what do I mean by the, this? Well, the thesis, this life box idea, it's uh, the best way to summarize it is universal automatism. And that's a phrase I, I coined. It's Nobody's exactly used that phrase. And the idea of it is that the world is made of computations. Now, the way I mean this is in not in the sort of schizophrenic sense where you think that you're inside a big gray box and there's this one master program that's running. It's sort of not the matrix sense where there's this one big computer that has everything inside it. It's more that reality is made of lots of little computations. One thing about computations that makes them amenable to making reality is they come in different scales. Uh, in other words, you could society as a whole is doing certain kinds of computations when uh, it does things with the stock market, when it makes political decisions, when inventions are formed, when populations spread. These are sort of high-level computations. There's also you know, low-level computations, um, all sorts of them taking place, the, the atoms bouncing, bouncing around, trees swaying in the wind, the weather. So we have computations at lots of different scales. And uh, there could be one master computation underlying it all. Wolfram seems to think there is. Uh, he's he's got this idea. There's some underlying. You know, it comes down to like the. What was that movie? The Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, 42. You know, is that is that the code number of the the thing that's making the spin ultrastructures? You know, and the the string networks and so on. But uh, now, one of the things. The sort of where, the, where the, the thing becomes debatable, of course, for us is our, our human mind. We always feel like that's not a computation. Now, um, when I say life box also, I think I should mention what I have in mind with that is this idea. It's something I've written about in a couple of my science fiction novels. Um, most people would like to write an autobiography. Uh, commonly, a very common thing when people retire, they want to write a memoir. Or if you're 25 and you get out of recovery, you write a memoir. <laughs> but uh, now, when you start trying to write a memoir or an autobiography, you find out that writing is hard. And the reason it's hard is because reality is this, this huge branching fractal. And it's hard to uh, make a line out of it. It's like you're trying to squeeze this this planet, this hurricane through this keyhole, through this linear, you know, one word at a time thing, and that's not easily done. 
Now, there was this hope for a while that we could start writing hypertexts, and uh, then you wouldn't have to do the linear thing. But that hasn't, it, it hasn't caught on so well as it might have. Though, in a way, websites are hypertexts, and we, we sort of just tend to not even think about it that much. Now, the idea of a life box would be you'd have a cell phone, uh, so you wouldn't even have to write, and it would ask you questions. You'd talk to it. Uh, you'd take pictures of things. You could also put in the things that you've written, and it would accumulate this, this database, maybe a terabyte. You could put it on a little, uh, you know, on your mini drive. These are my collected works here, okay? I always carry them with me. But you could put it on your mini drive, and then give it some reasonable access software, Actually, keeping my blog, I've realized it's already a little bit like that because on the blog, you can uh, there's a search window and you just uh, you type in search, it'll search for that keyword in the blog entries. It'll pop up a few entries and then you've got something. It's almost like you said to me, well, Rudy, what about cone shells? And then it'll pop up three or four things I've written about them. And uh, so it begins to be a little bit like talking to me. Now, of course, what we imagine. The, the missing thing is you want to animate the life box with some kind of intelligence. That's the hard part. Um, AI. I taught AI for a while at San Jose State. It was uh, really kind of surprising to find out how really crappy AI is. I mean, they, they've got nothing. They've got nothing. They've got, it's all search algorithms. You know, it's like we're going to tweak these parameters. I mean, neural nets are nice, but you're going to tweak some parameters. and. You don't know if you have the right kind of neural net. All you can do is try a bunch of them. There's, there's nothing there. It's uh, Anyway, <laughs> but let's not get into that right now. Uh, so uh, the thesis that everything's a computation. So maybe our mind is a, I, I believe our mind is a computation. I don't believe we can easily write the AI. But suppose we could somehow get the AI. Then you'd have this device that's like you. So even the mind could be a computation. Now, in the book, I do this thing of trying to build up the stairway to heaven. This is, a, in the Middle Ages, they called this the ordo siende, the way of knowing. And this is another sort of archetypal pattern you've seen a lot. You say, well, physics is built on computer science, biology is built on physics, psychology is built on biology, sociology is built on psychology, and then we have philosophy. Where's math and logic? Well, in the old days, they would have been at the bottom, but now we're going to put them up in, with philosophy. They're sort of, uh, maybe they've been de demoted a little, kicked upstairs. Um, now, the antithesis is the problem that life doesn't feel like a computation, because I don't feel like I'm just a smart cell phone with a big database and some AI program that works. I don't know how, but somehow it got in there. Well, I do know how. The way that the AI got in my body was that the human brain evolved over a billion years. Sometimes people do this Moore's Law thing. They say, well, I'll have a petaflop computer in 2050, and I'm gonna, that's going to be the same hardware as my brain. But then, wait, it's, they send you this petaflop computer, and it's blank. There's no programs on it. Where do you get the software? And that's, that's what evolution has done for us. I mean, we're born, most of what's in your brain, the, the black box for language, uh, visual ability to see objects, all the hard problems are already solved. That's already, you're born with that. You, we don't know, you know, it's just, and it's just this hideous, tangled mess. We don't know how to, how to copy it. Anyway, we've got that. Life doesn't feel like a computation. You feel, I mean, we were doing this, uh, this game here. You know, you feel like you are, you, I am. 
You know, I'm merging with the world. I have dreams. I see God. I have a soul. And uh, these are all things, this is where we dig in our heels. That's the antithesis. So the life box, the soul, these are the opposing, opposing dyad. And then um, the synthesis is to claim, you know, you could argue with this, but the claim that I'm promoting in this book, at least, is uh, that if you get a gnarly computation, and I'll say a little more about what I mean precisely by gnarly in a minute, if you get a gnarly computation, this is lifelike. The, the example that people, uh, philosophers often fall back on are the man in the street or woman in the street. They'll say, well, I can't be a computer program. Well, you're not a computer program, you're a computation. Okay, there's a difference. Com computers, I mean, a ThinkPad, it really doesn't have the computational power of a human brain. It hasn't been evolved over a billion years uh, in parallel on a planet. It doesn't have a trillion neurons, you know. It's uh, running these, these complex analog things. But it is still, it could still be a computation in my brain. But you might say, well, I couldn't be a computation because uh, it's deterministic and I have free will. I don't know what I'm going to decide to do. I don't know where I'm going to have dinner. Okay, it's not determined. I, I'm going to decide later. Well, you could, the thing is, what we found, this sort of, and this is maybe the, the one of the key things that Wolfram noticed. Uh, is that computations can be deterministic but not be predictable. And it sounds sort of trivial. As Wolfram said to me when I actually first met him in the 80s, he said half the people think what I'm doing is trivial and the others say it's false. So he said, well, that's a good place to be. So the idea is the, 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 the thing that, that we need to kind of get through our heads that is obvious but it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it is we have computations that are deterministic, but they're unpredictable. Now, unpredictable in the specific sense that uh, there's no there's no exponential speed up for most computations. You can get a linear speed up on any electronic computer computation by buying a faster computer. You get some more RAM. You can use lookup tables. You can get linear speed ups. Exponential speed up hard to do. Uh, most computations you can't do it for. Example of an exponential speed up, well, when you learn arithmetic instead of counting on your fingers, that gives you an exponential speed up. If I want to add two four-digit numbers, I don't have to like count through 10,000 numbers. I'm able to just do you know a few dozen steps arithmetic. So there are cases where computations have exponential speed ups, but this is the sort of belief that, that we have is that most complex naturally occurring processes are computations which are unpredictable in the sense of not allowing for exponential speedups. Now, if you have a computation of that nature, it would be reasonable to, for the thing to think that it has free will. It can't predict where it's going to have dinner. It can't predict who it's going to marry. It can't predict what it's going to do. Nobody else can either. So, you know, you'd say, well, then it's not deterministic. But there's a, it's just a language thing. Deterministic doesn't mean predictable, okay? You can, it, it will work it out. It'll just take it 10, 10 years to compute who it's going to marry, okay? But you can't predict it beforehand. So that's the, that's the sort of trick. That's the central teaching. Now, what do I say seashell for this? Well, again, it comes back to our friends, the cone shells. And uh, the cone shells have these 
patterns. The thing is, these are naturally occurring one-dimensional cellular automata. And they were beloved of the early workers in the field because our computers used to be so slow. You couldn't, you couldn't run two. It was like a big deal to get a game of life to run, you know, 300 by 200, you know, run 100 generations. That was like a feat of programming. And uh, these guys are one-dimensional. The way these shells work is they grow their lip. I've passed that shell around, and I want to get it back. Uh, the lip grows a little bit each year. And there's this row of cells there. And they either, uh, they're in they have different amounts of uh, activator and inhibitor in them. There's a, it's an activator inhibitor rule. And uh, they look at their neighbors. They sense how much is in their neighbors. And they either go to the dark mode or the light mode. And you get these nice patterns occurring. So that's the sort of mascot of cellular automatism or uh, universal automatism is the cone shell. Now, if we start saying everything is a computation, then uh, we say, well, let's do taxonomy. Let's, what kinds of computations are there? If the world's made of computations, what is, what's out there? And uh, there's various things that we can find out. We have some theoretical work from Turing uh, and, you know, lots more has been done on that, that certain kinds of questions can't be answered by computations, the, the famous Turing halting problem. Generally, any question you can ask about the long-term behavior of arbitrary computers is unsolvable. Uh, basically, it turns into the proof hinges on self-reference, but there's all sorts of things that are unsolvable. They don't have to be self-referential. So, um, the three kinds of computations, we might say, there's the, the simple ones. It's like Goldilocks. They're too cold. They die out or they repeat. There's the ones that are too hot. They're seething. Bill Gosper, he was a, a life. He was the guy who discovered the glider gun in life. When I first moved to Silicon Valley, I went to Page Mill Road and unearthed Gosper at Symbolics. And uh, he didn't. He was not a PC user, but I had this board I'd gotten from these guys at MIT for running cellular automata fast. So we took apart his secretary's PC, an old XT, and put this board in it. And I was able to show Gosper some cellular automata he hadn't seen. And he, he liked that. But then after a while, he said, I've looked at square things long enough. Now let's play with round things. And he had this old Volvo. He had about 400 Arabies in the back, each one numbered. And we'd go out and throw the Arabies. And he knew their flight characteristics, but according to the number of them. But anyway, he would say, like, the, the really ugly-looking cellular automata he calls seething dog barf. So uh, now gnarly is the in-between zone. So And Wolfram also had this class notation that we don't need to worry about that too much. He, he called them different classes. There's the rule of computations that die out. Now, most computations actually when you ask a computer like, to do something for you and it, it finds the answer and it stops, then you say, OK, that's good. That's, it, it's finished. Most of the computations in nature aren't like that. I mean, the weather doesn't stop. It, you, it doesn't reach a conclusion. Most computations that we're interested in are things that go on and on. And ideally, your life, uh, you, you reach this fixed point, but we'd like to think that ideally we wouldn't have to do that. And then there's things that repeat in this sort of lockstep repetition. These are also boring. And these things, you can predict what they do long term. This is going to reach a certain state and stay there. The predictable one also just going to oscillate. 
Then there's the totally seething ones. And uh, then there's the ones that are sort of at the interface, the gnarly ones. They're not, uh, they're not seething, sorry. And they're also not just being something constant. So um, the, the classic example of the, the seething CA rule is uh, CA rule 30. And maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll show you just a demo of that uh, just running live. So this would be, uh, this guy here is CA rule 30. So let me uh, seed it just with, uh, let's seed it just with one seed. Oh no, that's rule 90, sorry. Okay, uh, here's rule 30. Okay, so let's seed this guy with uh, one seed. Now, what you notice here is this is a deterministic system. I gave it one bit of input. Now, on the right, it has this sort of uniform, I mean, excuse me, left striped look. But on the right, what we've got is pretty much like foam in a beer glass. And the foam is just spreading around and around. Now, this is a world where the left end wraps into the right. So actually, the foam spread around, and it's wrapped around on itself. But this is still, it's totally deterministic. But it actually, Wolfram patented this for use as a randomizer. Uh, and when I worked for Autodesk, we used it as a randomizer there for a while. But um, turns out it wasn't actually as good a randomizer, at least the way I implemented it, as the, the usual one that ships with Unix. So this is an example of, like, this is a seething dog barf type cellular automaton. Now, I should also probably tell you, I, I look at these things all the time, but maybe this is, you haven't looked at these very often. Uh, this, uh, this is a space-time picture. So in other words, this is now, this is the next instant, the next instant, the next instant. And each line there is a, a, an instant of space. Okay, So it's a, the evolution of a spatial system. Now, if we look at the, uh, this is the one, this is Wolfram's darling. This is uh, CA rule 110. And this rule is, uh, you can prove that it's universal. There was actually. Um, that was a hard proof. And this man who worked with Wolfram uh, did a lot of the proof, Matthew Cook. And there was, well, let's not get into that. But anyway, um, what you see here, it has these patterns that move around, what you call gliders. That's going to die here because it's not a very big world, okay? And, uh, but what, what happens is you have information moving around in the computational space. This is the example of a gnarly computation. You have information moving around, things bumping into each other, information uh, moving around. Now let me show you a, a different example of a gnarly computation. Uh, this one's a little bit easier to look at. This is two-dimensional. Now this is a rule called Brian's Brain. It was invented by Brian Silverman. And, uh, what happens here if I, I take this world and I, uh, oh, if I like, just put anything in it, it'll always settle down to these. This world is sort of nothing but gliders. It's kind of the opposite of life. Uh, in life, you have a few oscillators but uh, and not so many gliders. And here it's sort of all gliders. Now, this is actually developed as a model of what takes place in the human brain because each cell has three states. 
it can either be uh, resting, it can be firing, or it can be tired because it just fired a refractory. And spontaneously, you get these patterns of excitation, like plowing back and forth in this space, bumping into each other. And this is nice. Uh, this is also computation universal. Uh, there's never been a formal proof of that, but uh, I don't think it would be very hard to make one. Um, as long as I'm showing you demos, let me just show you one more. Uh, this is a this is some software. Again, this is the Kapow I was showing you a little bit a second ago. But let me now go to the uh, let me load a, a 3D pattern for this guy. Okay, let me, I better do this. I better kill this guy because he's eating all my computation cycles. Okay, so let's say there we go. Okay. So let's uh, let's minimize this for a second. I'm in full geek mode now, doing demos. Uh, let me just show you a couple more. <laughs> so these are. Uh, let me show you some real nice ones. Uh, these are my favorites. These are the Jabotinsky scrolls. Um, so let me show you the one. Uh, I think Ain't Paint has a, a nice bunch of nice bunch of them. Okay. Yeah. There we go. So these are uh, not, this is the aintpaint.ca's file. You can actually get this software. It's I just did a fresh build of it. It's it's open source uh, freeware. It's on the web. Um, I developed it. Actually, EPRI funded us, the Electric Power Research Institute, for about three years. And as it's San Jose State, we had a grant from them. And the hope was somehow we would find a way to model. Uh, the electric power grid using cellular automata. And we didn't really produce anything that useful for them, but we've got some great cellular automata. And these are uh, these are continuous valued. This is I'm one of the only people who works with continuous valued cellular automata. The idea is in each cell there's uh, instead of there just being like that brain rule I was showing you, like the, the first those black and white ones one bit per cell. The brain rule, two bits per cell. These guys, we've got 32 bits per cell, or maybe 64 bits. Um, and they're in the form of two floating point real numbers. So uh, in a sense, they're digital, because I mean, they're just they're digital real numbers. They're not really analog computations. But they have a, they have a nice, smoother analog behavior. And uh, one thing that occurs in a lot of these rules that this is something that Wolfram doesn't actually mention in his book, or mentions only in passing, is there's these patterns that lots of different systems like to form these things. These are called, uh, you probably remember Ilya Prigogine's book, uh, I think Order Out of Chaos. And he had a lot of photos of these things. And these were originally found in Petri dishes uh, with malic acid and certain kinds of chemicals. And you get these these nice scroll patterns generating themselves spontaneously. And it turns out there's lots of two-dimensional cellular automata that generate these. Now that one, I mean, these come from all different, like this is a reaction diffusion rule. This is a, a nonlinear cubic wave equation. This one is two different competing species uh, in an environment. This one is, uh, this is based on Winfrey uh, wrote 
wrote down the formulas for the bayless jabotinsky chemical reaction. So this one's based on that. This is, uh, again, I, let's see. I don't remember all the others, okay, exactly what their origins are. But in, every, in very many of these, we get these nice self-organizing scrolls. To me, I look at this, and I, I just wonder, to me, this is the solution of the debate, really, about intelligent design. I mean, these orderly patterns, this isn't, it isn't hard for nature to make a fetus. It isn't hard for nature to make a bean. These are patterns that nature likes to do. It's just things that crop up, crop up in a natural way and uh, in, in all sorts of places. They also look like uh, the vortices that you see when you move your hand through water. You'll see these, these paired whirlpools. So these are uh, some of the guys that I really like. Now let's go back to the PowerPoint for a minute. Uh, so there's the CA Rule 30. We talked about that. There's Rule 110. Uh, okay. Now, um, we're almost done here with the PowerPoint. The consequences, if we, if we suppose we say everything is a, a gnarly computation in biology, patterns of society, um, what does this tell us? Well. First of all, it tells us that if, if you have some proof that something is formally uncomputable, can't be solved by a computation, that's all she wrote. You're not going to get a solution. Okay? Things that can't be, if you, like Hilbert's 10th problem, proved it was unsolvable, that means there's no general computable algorithm for telling if certain kinds of equations have integer solutions. And you might say, well, maybe there's some other way to find the solutions. But if all we've got is computations, there isn't going to be another way. Now, these days, quantum computation is holding out a little bit of hope. This, you know, maybe, maybe th this will get us out of it. Maybe this will give us something that's beyond computation. And uh, it's just beginning. It's exciting to think about. I don't know enough about quantum computation to be really, uh, to be very reliable what I say about it. Okay. Uh, my guess is that it's not going to get us out of this. Okay, there's still things are still going to be computations. There's not going to be. It's not going to enable us to short circuit, and solve NP complete problems in polynomial time or anything of that nature. Um, another thing that comes out of this, uh, Wolfram has this thing he calls the principle of computational equivalence, and basically it says that. If you take any naturally occurring complex computation, and complex in the sense of not obviously simple, then it's going to be a universal computation. It's going to be very rich. You look out there, you see those, those like yellow leaves on those branches waving in the wind. That's a universal computation. Okay? If you can see the air vortices in here, another universal computation. What your body's doing, the levels of things that are moving around in there, the, the hormones, universal computation. So they're just all over the place. Now, that's good, really, because uh, it tells us it's not like these little boxes that we made, these little electronic boxes that we carry around. They don't, they're not the only universal computers around. It's, very, it's pretty easy for something to be a universal computation. So there's lots of them. And also, the, we also maybe shouldn't think too highly of our machines, because after all, 
the, the resources that's being used by the wind blowing a tree or that's being used by a bi biological system are really orders of magnitude greater than something that you've got in this beige or black box that you buy from, from Dell or Apple. Okay. Um, most natural processes are unpredictable. Now, this is sort of a separate issue from most things being universal, because you can write, make a very inefficient universal computer that you could predict what it was going to do. In other words, you could speed it up a lot. If you had a universal computer that between every step it went off to some scratch paper and doubled the number of marks on it, then that would be so inefficient that you could find, you could say, well, that system is predictable because I could squeeze out a lot of waste that it's doing. But most natural processes are actually going to be, I, call, I prefer to call them unpredictable. Wolfram calls them irreducible. Uh, the idea being most things, as I was getting it before, like those, those cellular automata, that, that seething dog bar for Rule 30, there's no faster way to predict the millionth line of that than to actually compute out a million lines of it. There's, there's no formula that's going to get you that. So that's, uh, that's interesting. And uh, in some ways discouraging, in some ways liberating. We say, well, most things aren't going to be predictable, so let's not worry too much. <laughs> There's another sort of thing that drops out of this. Um, this is a more sort of mathematical logic thing. I used to wonder if Gödel's incompleteness theorem applies to nature. And uh, I used to think, well, to make it work, I'd have to do something like code up arithmetic into nature. It turns out we can't. We don't have to do that, because if a natural process is a universal computation, then it has an unsolvable halting problem, and then there's going to be basically any interesting questions you ask about it are going to be unanswerable. And another way to put that is, given any formal theory and a complex natural process, there's going to be statements which are formally undecidable by the theory. So you give me any theory of physics, and then, you know, I like throw a ball on the floor, and there's going to be things that theory can't predict about what the ball is going to do. Because it's a real ball. It's not an idealized virtual reality ball that bounces perfectly. So um, those are, in some ways, not necessarily good news. Well, is there any good news? Well, a couple of things. Nature uses complex, gnarly solutions, and we can too. This is something we're starting to see in architecture. It used to be that the only thing we were sure it wouldn't fall down was if we put you know, walls at right angles and a roof flat on top of it. So okay, that's, that's, that's going to stand there. But now you know, we see things like these, oh, like the, the Disney concert hall in LA or the, the, the stuff that Gary's been doing. And uh, architects are, are kind of breaking out of this. this thing, we can use complex things. We can do more complicated things. And uh, we don't have to always just do the simplest, uh, safest little thing. Uh, another interesting point is that stable patterns do emerge even when we use complicated systems that we can't understand. The taxonomy of computation is not actually that big. There aren't all that many different kinds of formations that can emerge. Like Jabotinsky scrolls, one of the standard things in 2D no matter what kind of rules you write. So uh, we might say, again, don't be too scared of, of having a system that's complex. Look, Let it run for a while, see what emerges, and those can be the stable patterns that you can use. 
Uh, an engineering thing is, it seems like, uh, sometimes people say this is going to be the century of bioscience, mm -hmm. probably. It also could be the century of new materials. I think we haven't really, there's so many materials that we haven't made yet. And we could imagine using things like cellular automata rules to grow new materials and get some really interesting things. And of course, there's still, if everything's a computation, this, there's got to be some more basic science to do about all of that. So those are the, some of the, the good things. Now, since I, I thought I'd deliver on the subtitle of my book, How to Be Happy, this is sort of a, an abrupt segue here, but since we're doing encounter group stuff, I, I'm sure this will be, be okay here to, to spring this on you. So this is how the book ends. Actually, uh, Amazon only reprinted one review, and it was a review by a guy who really took umbrage at my, me doing this. He said it was facile pop psychology. And come on, the book weighs a kilogram. It's anything but facile. <laughs> it wasn't easy to get to the last page. But uh, so I was thinking, we have these six levels of reality. And what can I, if I take the idea that everything is a gnarly computation, what can I learn from that? And uh, the one thing, any, and probably most of you know this, the best thing you can do for yourself is turn off your computer and go outside. Nature's computations are just as rich. They're actually richer. Sometimes we put so much emphasis on what's going on in these stupid machines. We spend all our time taking care of them and putting patches on them. I mean, sometimes people say, what if computers became the masters and we the slaves? Well, that happened a long time ago. I mean, this is the post-slave post era. But. Uh, to get, just to say, it's not everything, the machine. Nature is doing really rich, gnarly, great stuff. Physics see the gnarl, uh, perceive the interestingness of the world. Again, something I'm always doing is looking at clouds, ever since I started studying this stuff, looking at, at leaves swaying, looking at, at shapes, just looking at the motions of objects, dust motes in the air, and being you know, amazed. This is, some, this is computation. This is what I like to think about, but it's gnarly, and, and there it is for free. In terms of biology, uh, becoming aware of your body. Just uh, that's the whole thing, remembering that you have a body, honoring its complexity, being uh, sensitive to that. Psychology is uh, the thing with psychology, it's, it's trying to, it seems to you that there's two kinds of processes that happen in your brain. One of them is akin to the Jabotinsky scrolls, and these are like obsessions, things that you repeat over and over and over again. And the other thing that happens is akin to those Brian's brain gliders, these patterns, trains of thought that go pl plowing across your brain. And the idea here is to just be aware that that's what's going on in your brain. You have these centers pulsing out, these repetitive patterns. You have the trains of thought. And to sort of let yourself go and, and go with the trains of thought Break up, break up the repetitive things. Um, sociology. Well, here the thing is that other people are as complicated as you are. That's that's the thing. It's always when you talk to somebody who's a human being, you realize they're they're every bit as universal a comp computation. One of the the flaws that self-centered people, I, I myself do this, is you know you, you start thinking, you know, you're the only one, nobody else is really, you know, but then you start talking to somebody and they have, a, you know, this huge amount of stuff going on inside. 
And finally, be amazed. The universe is a miracle. So that's uh, that's where I'm going to stop the, the formal part. Okay. Um, what, what might this have to do with Plato's perfect forms that, that he had in Timaeus? What does what have to do with Plato's? What, what, the, what do these patterns, what might they have to do with Plato's perfect forms? Um, what would say Artomata have to do with Plato's perfect man? The idea that there are patterns. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's a hard question. Boy, you got me with that one. Uh, what would like would there be a perfect man? Is there an archetype of, of what a human should be? Uh, one slightly related thing I think about is this the best possible universe? In other words, uh, has the universe been evolving across some second dimension of time to, to get to this point? I mean, if you want to be a really gung ho universal automatist. You might say uh, there might be some seed. We could, suppose that physics is completely reversible. And if we know what's in the now moment, we can deduce the entire future and the entire past. So if, if that, just get that one now moment and run it forward and backwards. But where did the now moment come from? So when God makes the universe, he really only has to make one now moment and get that right. And then the whole past and future will be fine. And since I'm a novelist, I think in terms of drafts, okay? So maybe there's a series of, of universes. There's like the first draft. Let's try this for a now moment. That universe, well, I could do better. And it evolves out. So then we have this sort of dimension of paratime, perpendicular to time. We have different sheets of reality. So I'm not sure. I don't think God would know what the perfect man was like before doing a lot of experiments because it would be it would be an unpredictable computation. It would be a matter if even God is a computation, he has to do the you know, do the runtime, do the experimentation. Yeah? I just just uh start on with a, a big picture question. Why the word Nali? Uh, just if you could explain why that was used? Does it mean something else in Australia? Well, no. Well, and I'm just concerned that it is necessarily the best Fist term word. because for people to understand. Well, the reason I chose the word gnarly, partly, it's to be in your face and annoy people that would be stuffy as scientists. That's sort of a quality that I have. I've always been like that. Uh, partly, it's I really like the word. I'm proud of being a Californian. I, I managed to move here in '86, and so I assimilated. And I, 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 it's sort of a California word. Okay, originally gnarly is the. It comes. I think it comes from what you see on a tree, like the burl of a redwood, and then when I moved here, I found surfers using it. Uh, to mean a quality of, of the waves, when the waves are being fairly complicated. 
They weren't like blown out where it's just mush, okay, very windy. That wouldn't be gnarly. And it's not like just calm where nothing's, that's like a class two. But it's when it's at this interface between being, you know, totally just unsurfable, blown out chaos. And that's the, the sort of gnarly zone. And then I thought it was funny people would use that for food. You'd say this food is really gnarly. I remember my son saying, never ever eat anything gnarly. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was a song by a group called Spot 1019 called Gnarly Little Surf Machine. And I don't know. But I just, I like the word, and I, it makes me happy when I use it. So uh, I thought I'll just, I thought it's more fun than saying class four. <laughs> and complex, you can't really use the word complex anymore. It's been used, you know, so many people use that word to mean so many different things. It's no longer clear what it means. If I say a complex computation, I could either mean, be meaning a class three or a class four computation. And what I really want to get at is the class four, which is that, that interface. So th those are some of the reasons why I use that word. Yeah? What does it take for a computation to be universal? OK, a computation is universal if it can emulate any other computation. So uh, example, a Macintosh is a universal machine. It can emulate what a Windows computer does. You load in some code. And then you, you give it that Windows emulator code and a Windows program, and taken together, it then behaves just like the Windows machine. Or now, people don't usually buy cash registers anymore. They buy a computer, and then the computer is a program that makes it emulate a cash register. What, is that, what does it mean in terms of like the life of the, the reality atoms examples? Or... OK, like, you mean, what would it mean to say that the motion of particles is universal? Uh, that would be the, the belief, and uh, this is, it's on the order of a natural principle that Wolfram is arguing for, and I'm, I'm, I think it's a pretty reasonable principle, that if we take, in other words, if we could, well, actually, Ed Fredkin in the 60s did this thing. He said, imagine taking a, a pool table and putting billiard balls on it and do an idealized thing, do a sort of idealized pool table with billiard balls, let them bounce around. He found out he could make, uh, he could make gates by putting balls in certain positions. Okay, so if a ball slammed in here, then a ball would go off in the other direction. So it would be like a knot gate. And you could make things like or gates. And then he found you could do input. You could like shoot in a certain number of billiard balls in a certain direction. They'd go into this, this mess of all these other balls that would bounce around and bounce around. And then you get an output. So you could actually emulate any computation you wanted to uh, using this idealized billiard balls. Now, in practice, um, when, if you try to do that, what's going to happen is other stuff's going to seep in. Heat, you know, air molecules, the balls are going to have slight imperfections. You're going to get, it'll still be a universal computation, but what happens with natural systems you're not able to just give them an input and then isolate them and then wait for the output. What happens is more stuff always keeps getting in. Also, there's stuff that gets in as input, like the, the little cracks on the ball that, that you didn't really necessarily want to be there. But that's the sense in which we say that natural processes can be thought of as universal computations. Michael? I've got a question about sort of the accidental nature of all this. Um, 
I mean, if, if it's all numeric and there's heuristics and algorithms and, and routines that cause all physics to operate under predictable rules, um, um, why? Why, I mean, why couldn't it just be random? Um, okay, so you're saying, why couldn't physics just be random? Why should it have to be uh, deterministic? Yeah. Uh, well, it, it could be. It's, uh, I guess, to me, sometimes, I mean, when you write a book, it's sort of, you put yourself in a frame of mind. I, I think it's an interesting idea to suppose that everything is deterministic and to see, you know, in German they have the expression, ein Philosophie als ob, a philosophy as if. So say, well, suppose we, we accept this. I mean, how far can we go with this? And, uh, but one of the things that makes people think there's fundamental randomness in physics is, of course, quantum mechanics. Because if you are observing an uranium atom for a minute, maybe there's a 50-50 chance it'll decay. And at least the way quantum mechanics is currently set up, and if you look at the Copenhagen interpretation, it's inexplicably fundamentally random. There's no hidden variable that determines when it's going to go out. And so that's, uh, that's an issue that if you're a universal automatist, you have to take on. And uh, probably the best approach is to savagely attack quantum mechanics and <laughs> with a lot of ad hominem arguments and uh, say that it's not a final theory. It's Wolfram says quantum mechanics. It's like statistical mechanics was before people knew they were atoms. Okay, he's saying there's this sub sub level of reality, of uh, spin networks or strings. There's some lower digital level, and that could be. And then David Deutsch goes for the many universes approach, and you could say, well, actually, every the atom decays and it doesn't decay. There's two universes. And then it's still deterministic in the sense that both things happen. It's a, we only have a problem if only one thing happens and the other happens. Uh, another, and but the multiverse is at least for many people. For me, it's not philosophically appealing. Uh, it just seems like a waste to have all those universes. And we like to feel like our universe has this shapely form to it, and there's sort of a reason why it is the way it is. So there's another way out. There's this. Uh, thing called the transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics by a man called John Kramer. And that's not so well known, but I find it kind of appealing. And this kind of depends on there being signals that move backwards in time as well as forwards in time. And that escapes, there's things wrong with simple hidden variable theories, but it lets you have, in some sense, your hidden variables are in the future. and. Uh, then space-time is this huge reversible system. And then you just have the, the problem I alluded to before of how did you how did you seed that whole thing in an interesting way. Any questions? If not, um, I will segue us into the 